Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with... Will Sloan. And you're listening to The Important Cinema Club. And this week, we're talking about Steven Soderbergh. Now, I'm a little surprised that you chose this topic, because when I think Justin, I think, like, uh, you know, <laughs> dumb as rocks, action movies, you know, bad slasher movies, uh, Japanese monster movies, just, just dumb garbage. And yet... Uh, Steven Soderbergh is is not only a very cerebral director, he's also, I think, a very a very cold director, and which may be a reason why I like Steven Soderbergh. I think he's a force for good in the world, uh, but I, I don't really embrace him as one of my favorites. So I'm surprised you do. The thing about filmmakers that I like is that there's a lot of different things that can attract me to them, whether it be their work, like Sam Raimi, or um, their kind of personality, like Orson yeah. Welles, or their cinephilia. And I think cinephilia is one of the things that instantly makes me go, ooh, I need to see more about this director. Sure. Now, there are some directors like Quentin Tarantino who really wear their cinephilia on their sleeve with a lot of references to other movies. That's mm-hmm. not Soderbergh. Though. No, not really. I'm trying to pinpoint exactly when I kind of got obsessed with Steven Soderbergh, and I think it may have been when I read the screenplay for Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Now, what I would do in university was I would walk through the film section in York uh, University, and they have a huge section of film books and i would just run my finger along them looking for anything that would grab my interest and probably sex lies and videotape because the word is sex in it i assume sure and i'm like i'm ready for these salacious photos so you're you're looking for porn in the (laughs) film book section of york university library and what i discovered was a diary that he wrote when he was uh making sex lies and videotape diaries when making movies is something that i love i mean rebel without a crew the el mariachi one that robert rodriguez wrote is probably the most famous one uh darren aronofsky did one when he made pie and it's just watching someone struggle and figure out a way to make what a lot of people consider great movies i find it fascinating and what soderbergh revealed is that other than being a guy who's very self-deprecating he really loves movies and they kind of fuel everything that he does. Mm. And once I found that out, I'm like, well, I got to go watch his movies and see what kind of hints or directions they could point me into of things that influenced him and how he kind of absorbs the work that he really loves. And it's really difficult to see in the movies that he makes sometimes. Uh, you probably had seen some Soderbergh movies before this, though, right? Like Ocean's Eleven, probably? I probably saw Ocean's Eleven, yeah. Um, and that's probably it. Like, I didn't see Aaron Brockovich. Come on. I'm like 12 years old. I don't want to watch this movie. Sure, not nothing with girls in it. <laughs> what, but you're a filmmaker, too, of sorts. Yeah, of uh, sorts? Come on, man. You're, you're a filmmaker. Uh, like, does he... Ins- and Soderbergh is a very kind of... For a mainstream director, he's an extremely experimental director who tries lots of different kinds of things, works kind of from micro budgets to $100 million budgets. Does that inspire you? Oh, absolutely. He is a filmmaker that the further he went along in his career, the more that he kind of decided to do all the job himself. So he's the writer, the director, the editor, the cinematographer, and the camera person on all of his films past a certain point, even though he uses pseudonyms for all those roles. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's something that I find fascinating as well. As someone who makes films for no money, I have to do all these jobs. And to see someone who works with bigger budgets do this, that's really inspiring. And he talks about even films like Traffic. He decided to do, oh, I just want to shoot with natural light. So we'll switch the light bulbs out from 100 watts to 250 watts. That's pretty much all we're going to do in the scene. Well, that's interesting because like, I wouldn't say that Soderbergh isn't passionate about his work, mm-hmm. uh, because he clearly is. He's made 
you know, 20 movies uh, of many, and he's a very adventurous filmmaker. At the same time, there's a coldness to them and there's a detached quality to them. And whenever I see him interviewed, there's something about him that uh, he gives the impression of being like, oh, and now as my next experiment, I'm going to try this very low budget movie. And then as my next experiment, I'm going to do one for them, you know, an Oceans movie to for the for the plebs to keep my career running. There's something about it that doesn't seem engaged on an emotional level. Yeah, I could see that is that he's very analytical about his work. And I think that's why his films are the way they are. If you read about him and his the way that he works, he talks about how he will re-edit a film and cut it, cut it down to 70 minutes and then make it two hours and try to find the best version. And I feel that when you approach a work of art that way, what you're going to get is something that is mm-hmm. very efficient, but at the same time may be very cold. And I also feel like the stakes aren't all that high when I'm watching his movies, just kind of on an emotional level like there are some directors you see they really uh lay their guts on a slab and then there's an impression with Soderbergh that's kind of like okay let's try this little experiment if it doesn't work doesn't really matter I'll be on to the next experiment the way that he approaches movies is that he wants you to kind of be thinking about it afterwards he may think that uh, a gut reaction when watching a movie is kind of cheap and this is I don't know Soderbergh if he wants to come on the podcast (laughs) But that's like watching a movie like Haywire, which is his was his big action film that starred, uh, I think her name is Gina Carano, yeah, who was a UFC fighter, was he just saw her on TV and he's like, I want to make an action movie with this person. And because he, he kind of got obsessed for a long time with non-actors, so that's why he wanted to utilize her. And I was so excited for this movie. <laughs> it was choreographed by one of my favorite um, action coordinators, J.J. Perry. <laughs> and I saw a little clip that played at Comic-Con, which was her fighting Michael Fassbender, and I'm like, this is awesome! And when I left that movie, I was so infuriated. I was like, this movie was boring. I didn't care. The action scenes were very dull. And I'm like, I hated it. And my friend was like, yeah, I agree with you. It was bad. We came out on Blu-ray. And I'm like, all right, I'm going to watch it again. You know, I like oh, Steven for God's sake. <laughs> maybe, maybe I would like what he did. Watch it again. Hated it. I'm like, this is still <laughs> super boring. Why am I... This is bad. But people kept telling me, like, oh, no, it's good. You have to approach it in this particular way. Someone said it was um, very Brissonian in the way that he went about it, in that everyone's emotions are very muted. And there's no exposition in the film Mm -hmm. at all. Like, if you got to pay attention or you'll be completely lost. Mm -hmm. Finally, I watched it a third time. And I was like, I liked it this time. Well, some of us work for a living, so we don't have unlimited time to rewatch movies we don't like. Hey, hey, hey. I I work for a living as well. Yeah, I saw 15 minutes of Haywire on Netflix. I fell asleep, and I never got back to it. I'm sure it's good. (laughs) It's an experiment that he's trying to do. Like, the fight scenes have no sound effects to them. Mm -hmm. So there's no, like, or, like, hits that are really hard. And that kind of takes you out of it a little bit. And I'm sure that the way he approached it was... Oh, it's going to feel real. But what it does is it creates a distancing effect where you're like, I am not feeling these hits like I'm supposed to. So I'm not engaging on it on any kind of level. Sure. Um, So we watched two movies for this podcast. And I think you watched a third one, right? Yeah, I watched a a movie that I had never seen before called Sex, Lies, and Videotape. That sexy book I took off the shelf hoping for those sex photos. Yep. uh, Not very sexy at all, as it turns (laughs) out. I mean, well... Maybe it is for some people. I don't want to. I don't want to kink shame. 
Uh, but, Why are you pointing at me? <laughs> but the uh, the 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 main movies that we watched were 1996's Schizopolis and 1998's Out of Sight. So, so Schizopolis is an interesting one because it was the result of Soderbergh going through the kind of studio system. He made Sex, Lies, and Videotape. He made Kafka. He made King of the Hill. And he made uh, The Underneath. And it was kind of a difficult run for him because Sex, Lies, and Videotape... It was the movie that, I mean, the Sundance Film Festival had existed before that, but it was the movie that really put the Sundance Film Festival on the map in a big way. Made the Sundance Film Festival like a destination for a place where studios could go and buy movies and have box office success. It also kind of revolutionized the independent film, uh, well, I don't know if you call it independent film, but the Miramax version of the independent film world, where kind of in the 80s, there wasn't a lot of independent film. I mean, there was Jim Jarmusch, but but the 80s are are considered, are remembered primarily as kind of like a Spielberg, Lucas, Stallone playground. Uh, but in the 90s, Sex, Lies, and Videotape paved the way for stuff like Pulp Fiction and Memento. It's all kind of highlighted in this book called Down and Dirty Pictures by Peter Biskin, where he, they talk about Quentin Tarantino coming up, David O. Russell, and pe- people like P.T. Anderson as well. And, and Steve- uh, Kevin Smith. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, Steven Soderbergh kind of did his own thing though after Sex, Lies, and Videotape where he didn't take like a big studio picture or the equivalent of making a superhero film now. Kafka, his second film, it's so freaking weird. Uh, he uh, took a Lem Dobbs script that had been on whatever the equivalent of the blacklist was mm-hmm. and he made it. And it's so uncommercial. It's almost baffling when you watch it. It hasn't even been released on DVD in North America That's since its release. Um, he uh, Steven Soderbergh actually talks about how if it does get released, he wants Criterion to put it out, and he wants it to have two versions. One of them where he'll cut down to seventy minutes and dub in German, and that will be his ideal version. Um, and then he made King of the Hill, which is kind of an audience kind of pleasing film produced by Robert Redford, which is about a boy in the Depression who the entire film is about him starving. And then finally, the underneath, which is kind of a neo noir, which was really popular in the early 90s where people like uh, John Dahl of The Last Seduction were making those kind of films. Mm-hmm. But his adaptation was a remake of Criss Cross, a old uh, noir film. And it's not very good. Mm. It's not good to the point that it's included as a bonus feature <laughs> on the Criterion release of King of the Hill. <laughs> and uh, Soderbergh is like, yeah, this didn't work. It's not good. And that movie really crushed him. He talks about how when he was on set, he just realized, like, this is not what I want to be doing with my life. So he went, I'm going to pool some of my own money, and with a crew of, like, three people, I'm going to make a film that I star in, comes from the heart, and is really something that I haven't done before, which is Schizopolis. And it costs, like, what, $60,000 It's almost nothing. Yeah. And the film is weird. Uh, he uh, Steven Soderbergh wrote this uh, book of interviews with a director called Richard Lester, a guy who's most famous for making, like, The Knack and The Beatles films, A Hard Day's Night, and Help. And also Superman 2. <laughs> That's right. And taking over for um, Richard Donner in Superman 1. Oh, yeah, that's right. But, uh, but yeah... Richard Lester, a great director. We should do him sometime. And he has a very uh, interesting style to his films, which are very anarchic. Mm-hmm. Uh, kind of like Zucker Brothers before Zucker Brothers, where anything goes. Mm-hmm. There's definitely French uh, New Wave inspiration, stuff like that. And you can feel Soderbergh kind of taking those influences. Like I said, he did a book of interviews with the guy mm-hmm. <laughs> and trying to apply them to Schizopolis. And, and I don't think it totally works. Well, Schizopolis, uh, first of all, th- this movie... I think was a surprise screening at the Cannes Film Festival in 1996, where it was probably, I think it was booed, like it was not uh, well received. And as a result, uh, when he released it to theaters, he added an intro where 
uh, Steven Soderbergh himself gets up on stage like Cecil B. DeMille and says says something along the lines of, uh, I'd just like you to know that if you don't understand this movie, you need to see it more and more and more <laughs> times and pay full ticket price. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's the thing about Steven Soderbergh is that a lot of his experimental films are very serious, but as a person, he's pretty funny. Well, th- I mean, this movie is kind of an absurdist comedy. It mm roughly follows uh, the life of this office drone played by Steven Soderbergh, who I think is great in this movie. He's really funny in this uh, movie. And, but he also has a doppelganger who's this dentist. And, event- and the dentist is having an affair with his wife. And eventually they, uh, the office drone assumes the identity of the dentist. But that doesn't really do justice to kind of how how weird and off the wall the whole movie is lots of cutaways to stuff going uh, going on lots of little off the cuff absurdist jokes yeah so there will be a lot of cutting to a news anchor talking about like that a meteor is about to hit the earth and that or there will be it's it's very python-esque you know a scene like when Soderbergh comes home and talks to his wife and they talk to each other they say generic greeting generic greeting uh hmm, insincere comment about upcoming meal when I watched this movie for the first time I really really liked its first 40 minutes didn't really like its last 40 minutes i actually kind of felt that way when i was watching it again this time i mean i liked the whole movie but i sort of felt around the midpoint that i kind of got what i was going to get out of the movie and it kind of takes a step back and stops being as crazy as it was at the start and starts to try to actually say something and make an emotional point yeah well i i the other thing i want to say about this movie is that i think it's an interesting time capsule now it actually reminds me of a movie that I don't like as much called American Beauty. Mm-hmm. Um, and I and like American Beauty, it's kind of this time capsule of the 90s, sort of a Clinton era uh, end of history movie about the suburbs where everyone is kind of worried about, okay, um, economic prosperity is forever and America is number one. And uh, here we are in this nice upper middle class upbringing, but it's kind of empty, isn't it? And and what are we? That's a, a, a mode of intellectual inquiry that isn't as in fashion right now, now that, you know, th- uh, there are wars and Donald Trump's and the recession yeah. and stuff like that. It, it's very much of its time. Um, so I don't know. I thought it was kind of interesting to be reacquainted with that. Like we said that it was a small crew. It was also a very personal project. His ex-wife, plays his wife in the movie yeah and i believe the kid may be his daughter don't quote me on that it's interesting that's a personal project though because i mean steven soderbergh is far from an office drone he has said that he never worked in an office ever in his life Mm -hmm. so for him to make kind of that commentary on office life and the emptiness of it you have to apply it to him making films and i don't really see the correlation between both of them i mean you know he it doesn't have to be exactly no uh, yeah but like the emptiness of making Films like King of the Hill and Kafka? I'll trade my life for his. (laughs) (laughs) Soderbergh, can we look through a window and trade personalities? But again, I do really like him as an actor. Um, Really, maybe just in this one movie, because there's something about his face that is so bland and normcore, and he's got kind of this uh, sad sack look to him. There's this great scene when he's in the bathroom and he's looking in the mirror and he just does a bunch of like weird Jim Carrey faces at himself which is one of the great scenes in any Soderbergh movie. And you may think that after something like Schizopolis, his career would be over. He talks about that when he made Schizopolis, he felt he was at the point that he would appear in those, where are they now? <laughs> kind of like, they won the uh, they won Sundance, but they haven't made a hit since. And a lot of those Sundance directors from kind of 91, 92, from that era, like... I don't know, Alison Anders. Just take a look at four rooms to get yeah. a little taste of that Sundance. Where did those directors yeah. go? 
Um, but that's not what happened. No, he kind of knocked it out of the park with like a bunch of films that I don't think anybody expected to be as big hits as they were. The turning point, though, seemed to be out of sight, his next movie, Mm -hmm. which could not be more different than Schizopolis. And it could not be more different than most of the filmography of Steven Soderbergh, because where a lot of his films are cold, out of sight is very warm in the way that it's presented. It uh, it sizzles, if you will. (laughs) Will Slow, (laughs) the important cinema club. Yeah. Uh, This is a movie that I really, really enjoy. And it's another movie that when I saw it the first time, I didn't like very much. Mm -hmm. And it's because it's not what you expect. And... Out of Sight adapts an Elmore Leonard novel. And he's known for, uh, he wrote the novels uh, Get Shorty and and Rum Punch, which became Jackie Brown. And his films have a kind of um, ambling quality to them. Mm-hmm. Like, no one's really in a rush to get anywhere or do anything. Yeah. That is a little bit off, was, I found a little bit off-putting. Because, you know, I want to get to the action, man. Sure. I mean, you can understand why Tarantino is a fan of Elmore Leonard, because even though I haven't read an Elmore Leonard book, I know that they're kind of these crime genre stories that are very much about the the dialogue and the character relations more than they are about the story per se. And Out of Sight is perfectly pitched because what you have is this kind of simple, straight-ahead story, a romance, and everyone on screen basically turning in movie star-like performances. Yeah, I mean, that's one of the great pleasures of the movie. Everybody has chemistry with everyone, especially George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez. Uh, The scene... So, if you haven't seen the movie... uh, George Clooney is a prolific bank robber who escapes from prison, and Jennifer Lopez is the FBI agent. Yeah, I uh, think something like that. She it, takes prisoners to the prison. Yeah, and she's on his trail, but there's this, an intense mutual attraction, and eventually it gets to a scene kind of like the De Niro Pacino see- coffee shop scene in Heat, except they have sex in it. <laughs> Wait, they don't do that in Heat? Uh, well, you must have off not screen. seen the uncut version. <laughs> yeah. But I, uh, that that scene with uh, George Clooney and Jennifer Lopez meeting in the hotel restaurant and then going to bed i think you know just one of the great displays of movie star charisma and talking about steven soderbergh's experimentation did you hear that there's a the first time they meet they meet in a um the trunk of a car Mm -hmm. where jennifer lopez gets thrown in there and george clooney goes to to hide and he originally shot it in one take that day and that was all that he did he did that one take he's like that's it that's what i want and he realized when he got to editing that it just did not work. Mm-hmm. So he's like, I got to go back and reshoot it and make it work. And that's something that I find very attractive about Steven Soderbergh is that his constant experimentation and also saying that, like, I am wrong with these decisions that I'm making and I need to find a better version of this. Well, that scene in the trunk is incredibly critical because you have to believe for this movie to work that this bank robber and this FBI agent have a mutual attraction and if they're not in love, they're at least really interested in each other and want to see each other again and figure and see where it goes. Um, and it's something that like, if you don't buy that and it's a hard thing to pull off because why would they be attracted to each other after being stuck in the trunk together? Uh, but the movie pulls it off. And this is a film that its style is firmly rooted in the seventies, which mm. probably is Steven Soderbergh's favorite decade, considering how often he rips off that kind of style. Mm. And I think it works very well in Out of Sight, which its partner movie, The Limey, which came out right after about Terrence Stamp, is almost too slavish to that. Mm. And I, I wasn't it you the one that said that I I said like oh I really like The Limey, which is a film where Terrence Stamp has to go find his daughter and find out where she is. And you were like why would I watch The Limey if I can just watch Point Blank? I don't remember saying that, but I agree with the sentiment. <laughs> but I think that the thing that works about a movie like The Limey, which it's non-linear editing and it's kind of off the cuff. 
um, shooting is that it's commenting on those movies that came before. And like Terrence Stamp, who would have appeared in a movie like Point Blank back in his day, is old and the limey. The kind of throwback style is saying something about it instead of just slavishly recreating it, meaning nothing. Mm -hmm. While Out of Sight, though, does feel fresher than the limey. Yeah, I agree. Uh, and, you know, this week I watched half of Ocean's 12 on Netflix, a movie I had never seen before. Uh, I, d I didn't really care for it that much, but I felt that he what he was going for in Ocean's 12 was the same thing that he was going for in Out of Sight, which mm -hmm. was uh, big movie stars being charismatic uh, with a, a tone that is all, sort of light and offhand, a tone that you watch and you should you should feel like, oh, he makes that look easy. Yeah. But, I mean, the problem with Ocean's 12 is, I mean, it just feels, it, it doesn't get the tone right. And instead it feels kind of like a bunch of smug, lazy stars. <laughs> I really like boring. Ocean's 12. Yeah. Oh, I only saw the first half. Because it feels kind of like an FU to after making Ocean's 11, which is a slick, straight ahead remake of the Ocean's films. Mm -hmm. It's almost kind of missing that Steven Soderbergh touch, mm -hmm. which, and Ocean's 12 seems to be a re reclamation of that, of being like, ah, nah, I'm just going to make it in the way people that don't expect. I could not imagine. Well, thank you, Steven Soderbergh, for telling me to fuck off. <laughs> I could not imagine. <laughs> <laughs> being a studio head and watching those dailies for Ocean's 12 and being like, what is this? I didn't particularly like Ocean's 11 very much either. I thought oh, it was... Oh, I like it. Yeah. It's fluffy and fun. I, I don't know. I thought there was something... Uh, I thought there was something missing there. Really? Heart, perhaps. I don't know. <sighs> like I said, it's that... I haven't seen it in 15 years. What would I know? <laughs> that coldness, I think, comes from him uh, analyzing his films to the point of almost rendering them without emotion. Mm -hmm. which, and... which is an approach I think works for something like The Girlfriend Experience mm -hmm. or... I don't know. Uh, Bubble, which was Bubble, his experimental sure. film that he made. Um, I think it was Showtime or one of those channels hired Soderbergh to make films on mini DV mm. and to um, release them. One of the first films to be released in the theaters and on DVD on the same day. Now, there are there are almost no directors who embody the one for me, one for them philosophy more than Steven Soderbergh. I mean, you, you only had to read interviews with him around the time he was doing the oceans movies when like, he basically just said it in those terms where he would go off and make something really experimental and weird, like full frontal. And then he would do oceans 12. And there was something about his tone that struck me as a little bit, um, um, disingenuous or or smug or I don't know there was there was something about about the way or cynical would be yeah. the word that I'm looking for I mean he's probably a little cynical but I've never gotten the feeling watching his films that he doesn't care about what he's doing and when we talk about a hack it's someone that goes in and just does the job and leaves um, sure. And Soderbergh never feels like that. I think it's just because I expect more from a, a really? guy like Soderbergh. Like, okay, a hack comes in and does the hack job. It's like, well, okay, you're a hack. But then Soderbergh, uh, kind of, a, when Soderbergh approaches an ocean sequel cynically, I, I get disappointed. I don't think he's approaching them cynically. I feel like like an adult uh, talking about their child being like. <laughs> I feel like a parent talking about their child and being like, but he's really trying. <laughs> and like um, Ocean's Eleven seems to be his attempt to make the fluffiest commercial entertainment as possible. And Aaron Brockovich was probably his attempt to make kind of the, the fluffiest Oscar movie possible. Now, we need to talk about uh, Traffic and Eric Brockovich, because they came out, I think, in the same year. Two, be 2000. Because they were nominated both for um, Best Director and Best Picture. Mm -hmm. um, and Steven Soderbergh ended up winning for Best 
best director, director yeah for traffic which is incredible that he didn't split the vote but and uh, gladiator won for best picture yeah <laughs> you know sometimes we just want some popcorn entertainment well yeah the oscars are dumb and um aaron brockovich i like for what it is I that reminds it reminds me a little bit of those movies Gus Van Sant would make like Finding Forrester or something where it's kind of like you're better than that and you (laughs) and you know it in fact I saw Gus Van Sant he said in an interview once that he regarded a movie like Finding Forrester as being sort of like community service you know making a movie (laughs) for the community to which I think like oh well thanks for doing me a big favor I think Gus Van Sant in that quote specifically sounds a little bit more cynical than I uh, see Steven Soderbergh I I agree because <laughs> even Aaron Brockovich I watched it a little while back and it doesn't have the same structure or emotional beats you would expect from that film I also like Julia Roberts's performance is just like what a ham you know just just <laughs> just such a showboat I don't know <laughs> I'm sorry that he can't just make Michael Haneke pictures all the time <laughs> even though he does with movies like Bubble and um, yeah, the Girlfriend and, Experience and then I go and call them cold so he can't, he can't win either way <laughs> uh, but something like Traffic is almost baffling to me that it was so well regarded and won so many Oscars because it's a difficult film to get into yeah, two and a half yeah. hours long very experimental and it, like you said, it doesn't have those big emotional beats that you would expect from a movie like that. They're there, but they're fairly subtle in the way that they're presented. What do you think about it resonated? I don't know. Because uh, it made like $180 million or something insane. I, I, I feel like audiences leaving that movie would be like, huh, that's not what I thought it was. And this is a good example because uh, I was talking about watching The Informant at my job that oh, yeah, I work I at about every day. <laughs> and my coworker went, oh, The Informant. Oh, I hated that movie. And I was like, why? He's like, I thought it was going to be a comedy and it wasn't. It's funny. It is funny, but I feel like there's a weird kind of disconnect with the way that his films are advertised and the way that the films actually are. Well, I think Magic Mike is an excellent example of that, which was kind of marketed as this like girls night out, uh, you know, fun male stripper movie. And really it's this somber, slow, somber, kind of languorous uh, meditation on the recession with a couple of male stripper scenes. But that movie was a huge hit. I know. I like Magic Mike. I really like Magic Uh, Mike. I really like Magic Mike too. Have not seen, but I I think from what I hear, Magic Mike 2 is more along the lines of what the first movie was advertised as. And Steven Soderbergh, who had retired from directing at that point, also did the cinematography and helped edit the movie. So he was still involved. So he can do those kind of things. Speaking of people that I know again, a friend of the podcast, Matthew Kumar, boo, hates Steven Soderbergh with a fiery passion. Really? He finds his movies super boring. Which I feel is what most audiences would take for most Steven Soderbergh films. We watched Kafka, and he was just like, he disconnected after 30 minutes. And well, Kafka is a really extreme case. <laughs> yeah, but even Magic Mike, he hated what Soderbergh did to Chan Chan Tam Tam. <laughs> even though Chan, I Chan, feel Tam, that Tam. Channing Tatum's uh, charisma really popped for me in Haywire. Hmm. Where like that opening scene where he goes to the diner with Gina Carano, and he's like, listen, you gotta come. Let, let, you gotta go, was a side of Channing Tam Tam that I had not seen ever probably in a movie. Because he had been, what, in the Step Up films and the G.I. Joe films where he might as well be a block of wood? Mm-hmm. Where it shows that certain directors can get something out of Chan Chan that other directors can't. Yeah, I see Chan Chan as kind of like a piece of found art that that is kind of the same in every movie, but other directors can use to their advantage. I highly disagree with that. I like Channing Tatum. Yeah, but like if you watch him something like 21 Jump Street and something Jupiter Ascending. Uh, yeah. Oof. There's yeah. sad Channing Tatum and there's happy Channing Tatum. You don't know which one you're going to get when you go see a movie. Yeah, uh, so Steven Soderbergh retired. 
Yes, he did. He said that he was going to take up painting instead. And he didn't. No, he did not. Uh, after the movie Behind the Candelabra... Oh, which I really liked. Which is the uh, story of... Uh, Liberace. Liberace, towards the end of his life, his uh, romance with a young man, which eventually ended with... I don't know. I can't remember. <laughs> it ended poorly. Soderbergh talks about how he was frustrated with the Hollywood system and that he couldn't get the money to make the movies he wanted. When looking at his filmography, it almost feels like Soderbergh was mostly in control. But maybe it, we don't see the big projects he wanted to Maybe. Make. I know Behind the Candelabra was one of those movies that he wanted to make at a studio. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it had Michael Douglas as Liberace, Matt Damon as as the younger guy. Uh, but he still couldn't get the money at a studio and had to make it for cable. And, uh, you know, watching the HBO version of the movie, I don't know how different the studio version would have been. I, I Yeah, I think it looks really good. <laughs> and... We're talking about films that, like, Soderbergh didn't make. Like, he was going to do uh, that, a Cleopatra musical <laughs> with Casper Zeta-Jones, with Guided by Voices writing all the songs. Wow. Now, that would have been weird. Yeah, yeah. And I'm interested in that kind of, like, what that version of Soderbergh would have been. Because you look at all his movies, and they're all basically in a similar style, whether he's doing different genres. They all have that auteurist touch. Mm. When you're waiting for that movie where you could watch it and go, oh, that doesn't feel like a Steven Soderbergh movie. What would you define as Steven Soderbergh's authorial signature? It depends on what um, time you actually want to analyze. Because when he got around the informant, his style seemed put the camera down, get the actors to kind of get kind of improv and I will mold it in editing. But he's always doing interesting stuff. Like, even in The Informant, the whole supporting cast are comedians. Yeah. Like Patton Oswalt. But playing dramatic roles. Playing dramatic roles, yeah. And that kind of experimentation is something I find really fascinating. What point is it that, like, because I like the director, I'm forcing myself to like his movies? Well, I mean, Soderbergh, like, I, I can't think of a Soderbergh movie with the possible exception of Ocean's 12 that I flat out disliked. The Good German. Oh, yeah, The Good German. But there there aren't that many. And even The Good German is sort of an honorable failure. It's so experimental and interesting in what he tried to do. And that was a big release, too. Like, mm. it, I remember it opening wide in cinemas. I cannot imagine sitting there not knowing what it was and being like, what the fuck is this? A black and white sort of pastiche of early 1940s Warner Brothers movies, <laughs> but with a lot of swearing and sex in it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And um, I, I, the fact that Soderbergh has lasted that long in the kind of studio system, I think is admirable. Yeah. Because his films are so odd that... Only the success of something like Traffic or the Oceans films, or even Aaron Brockovich, allowed him to continue. Mm. But I think that Soderbergh's most um, audience-pleasing stuff, and I use that word very weirdly, but most um, approachable work has to be in TV, especially the two seasons of The Nick that he directed. Which I haven't seen. Did you like it? Oh, I love The Nick. And um, Emily, guest of the podcast. Oh yeah, on our Jim Carrey episode. Check it out. Uh, We watched the whole series together, and she loved it. She got kind of obsessed with it. And it's fascinating style because he shot this, I don't know, 14, 10-episode series in like 90 days. And the only way he could do it was that he would shoot in one location, shoot all the scenes in the 10 episodes, and then move on to the next one. Hmm. And it's in a style that I wouldn't associate with him because something like The Informant is all locked down and um, The Nick is all handheld and long tracking shots and stuff like that. And that's a kind of evolution I hope continues with his work because guess what? He's back to directing again. Oh. He's retired. I also thought Spock was a goner, so I'm <laughs> glad. <laughs> I'm shocked. Because <laughs> um, I think his next movie is a Chan Chan Tam Tam heist picture. 
Are you going to laugh every time yeah, I say that? Yeah, I am. <laughs> um, you can see the origins of that in an episode of Loose Cannons. No. Uh, <laughs> no. Don't, don't do that. Uh, I don't remember which episode. Just go listen to them all. Uh, Will Sloan endorses Loose Cannons Podcast. Our rival podcast. <laughs> it's not our rival podcast. <laughs> we do not touch the same subject matters at all. So after me rambling for about 30 minutes about Soderbergh, have I changed your mind? Have you seen the passion that he has in his films? And you will approach them differently, maybe watching them three times until you like them. No. Uh, what's next week? <laughs> oh, I like Steven Soderbergh, though. What's next week? Um, Soderbergh... Again, <laughs> we're going to reevaluate it and see if you like it more this time. Okay. Uh, no, we're going to be doing one shot wonders. So directors who have only directed one feature film. So obviously we have to do Night of the Hunter. We're contractually obligated by to Charles Lawton, the Citizen Kane of one shot wonder films. But more to the point, we're going to do Honeymoon Killers by Leonard Castle. And we're going to do Wanda by Barbara Loden. Which I had never even heard of until Will brought it up. Yes, it's a very, uh, very well-regarded movie. <laughs> You're keeping it close to the chest. Until yeah. The <laughs> All right. Well, do you have anything else to share with our listeners before we uh, end this episode? Uh, I don't know. I'm just, I'm just glad you're here with us. <laughs> Am I going to die soon? I, I'm just, I'm talking to our listeners. Oh, you okay. Know? You looked at me in the eye and said that. <laughs> well, you too, you know. Uh, please tell your friends. Yeah. Rate us five stars on yeah, iTunes. Yeah, yeah. Rate us on iTunes. <laughs> There's like tears streaming down Will's face because he asked if we had letters and I had to tell him <laughs> no. <laughs> What's our email? Um, Important Cinema Club Podcast at gmail.com. I wonder i'm like saying this wrong that's the only reason right? uh, you know what we don't we don't need letters it's just enough to know that they're out there all right well my name is justin DeGlue. my name is will sloan thanks for listening i was gonna go see the movie monkey warfare but then it was the night the royal reopened but there was a big picket line outside the royal because like the projectionists were striking and i thought well i probably shouldn't cross a picket line so i went to see uh monkey bone i went yeah i went to see the good german <laughs> can we talk about monkey bone a little bit i've never seen monkey bone what i All know right, we're I'm gonna sorry. do a brendan fraser episode <laughs> you're gonna say henry Sully. <laughs> no brendan or fraser. a chris Catan episode <laughs> fury for furry vengeance and looney tunes back in action uh the mummy dudley do right gods and monsters Oh yeah, that was his. That was his punch drunk love. Yeah, you know? exa- which came very early in his career. Mm-hmm. I wonder if he's waiting for it to come back. Brendan Fraser's career is, is really inexplicable because he seemed to make a decision to like be the family movie guy. What you know? Why do people make that decision? It must be money, right? I guess. Well, I mean, he did family movies, and then he also had a run of doing. Well, he was in Crash, and he was also in that movie with Harrison Ford where they were doctors. Do you remember that? Uh, it's like Extreme Measures or something, something like, like that, that, which I don't even know what it was about. But that was kind of like, I bet he read that script and he was like, this is my Oscar movie. <laughs> and then when it failed, he's just like, I don't care. Furry Vengeance 2. I think Furry Vengeance was maybe the last thing I can remember him being in, which is crazy because there was the year that Journey Journey to the Center of the Earth and The Mummy, Tomb of the Dragon Emperor came out back to back in the summer, $100 million each. And they were huge successes. Yeah. And he just kind of disappeared after that. Have you seen the end credits of Furry Vengeance? No. Where it's like parodies <laughs> of movies and they put furry in front of it, which is like, I don't think the filmmakers know the connotations that this means. Yeah, yeah. <laughs>